Not really. Colton, thank you for helping me focus my mind and fill my heart. I hope that's how you felt today, too, during our worship time. I'm sort of running on fumes a bit this morning. I um, spent the better part of our week at, uh, or better part of the week at our annual Canadian conference as a group of churches, and then yesterday our Alberta conference. So I'm all filled with spreadsheets and and so thank you, Colton, for helping me fill my mind and my heart and focus it this morning. Uh, this evening is our annual general meeting, and we're going to do some uh, reviewing and reporting. And if you're new around here, it might be a wonderful place to, it's a great opportunity to check out a little bit what's under the hood uh, around here. Uh, for many of us, the big deal uh, at Ellerslie in 2018, 2019, this, this ministry year, has been Project 18, getting this um, restructuring of, of our Sunday morning gathering experience. And over the past few months, several times, I've been asked, and we've been asking ourselves as a staff and as a board, so what now? What's next? Some of us may not have asked that question out loud because we don't, we don't want to know the answer. Enough change already. If we did ask it, it might be with an eye roll, like, now what? <laughs> right? So, for our teaching this morning, though, as we're going we're gonna to stay in the Gospel of Mark for our core Scripture passage, but like I said, it's going to be not so much a tough talk, but a tough challenge from Jesus, actually. And uh, we're going to use this annual general meeting Sunday to introduce us to three words that we've been thinking about as we think of this, so what now? Maybe we could call it um, our I-cubed challenge. Three words that we hope Project 18 will actually inspire us all to, to, to live in together. Uh, if you've read our newsletter for this month, which is available at the kiosk in front of the office, uh, if you've read the newsletter, you might, these words might have a familiar ring. Uh, we're going to introduce them this morning, and over the next several weeks, we're going to invite you to engage in some very specific challenges around these three words. These three words you're going to hate them until you live in them, okay? I promise you, we're going, to, we're going to use these words quite often. Number one, invite. Number two, include. And number three, invest. Those are the three words. Dave, come and introduce us to the invite challenge. Thanks, Mel. Jason, please forgive me for what I've just done to your, uh, your binder here. Invitations are nice. About four years ago, right before my second son was born, I recognized that I was spending a lot of evenings out of the house between what was taking place at church, between what was happening um, with playing soccer and between refing soccer. My wife looked at me and she said, Dave, enough is enough. You're out of the house too much. You have to make a choice. Obviously, there's going to be church commitments, but you have to choose between repping soccer and playing soccer. You can't do both. But before you make that decision, I want you to think about it. When you ref soccer, you make money. And when you play soccer, you spend money. So think very carefully about what you're going to do next. She had probably made up my decision for me. But I was 33 years old, and to play soccer with a bunch of 22-year-olds, I was recognizing I was always a half step behind. So maybe it wasn't so bad. 
And at 33, it's kind of a sweet spot for a referee. You're still in good enough shape to keep up with the play, but hopefully you've earned enough of your stripes to recognize, I think I can handle these more difficult conversations. But six months ago, I received an invitation I couldn't refuse. In soccer, like most sports, once you hit the age of 35, you become a master. And at 37 years old at the time, I recognized, you know, I can keep up with these 40-year-olds. In fact, I can blow right by them. So this is intriguing. A number of my friends have, were playing on the same team, and their goalie, the position that I play, had gotten injured. They probably talked to three other people before they came back to me, but they said, Dave, we need you. We're in the top division. We're currently in first place. Things are looking really good. Will you come play for us? It was an invitation I couldn't refuse. It wasn't a bait and switch either. I hopped online, I looked at everything, and it was true. We were in first place in the premier division. We were set to make provincials. We had to win three of our next five games, and they said, you can play for free. It's a bunch of your old teammates. Come, join our team. How do you say no? I think most of us enjoy these types of invitations. We open up our uh, mailbox and we go through all the junk mail and we go through all the bills and then you see a handwritten note. And it's from a good friend, it's from a family member, a niece or a nephew, and you're invited to their wedding. And you think, finally, something in my mailbox I'm excited about. Most of us in this room have walked through job applications and job interviews before. And you think to yourself, I want to work for that organization. And you get the phone call, you get the email, and you say, yes. That's an invitation. That's something I want to be a part of. Even on a much smaller scale, someone invites you to the movies, out for a barbecue or out for coffee, and you go, yep, that sounds like fun. Allow me to look at my calendar and we'll get right back to you. Over the last few months, we've been going through the book of Mark, a man who is not a direct apprentice to Jesus, but was mentored by someone who was. Mark has walked us through Jesus' life and ministry, and while today is not the last sermon in our series, we're going to be looking at the last passage in the book of Mark. So allow me to give you some background, as Mel said, to this tough challenge. Much to the horror of Jesus' closest followers, who had been with him for the last three years, they arrive in Jerusalem, and Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. Then much to their astonishment, these very same followers, three days later, they see him rise from the grave, showing his disciples that he's conquered sin and death. Over the following few weeks, he would meet with them, encourage them, and one of the last things he said is something we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. This is how the Gospel of Mark frames it. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Three years ago, Jesus had invited these 12 disciples to follow him, invited to hear this life-changing message, invited to witness miracles, invited to be a part of his life, and now he's flipping the script. And he's saying, as I invited you to follow me, now I want you to go out and invite everybody else to come and follow me. The disciples took this invitation seriously, and over the next 50 years, the gospel started to spread like wildfire. What started in Jerusalem soon expanded to the province of Judea, the neighboring province of Samaria, over into Europe, and eventually to the ends of the earth. People from all nations, tribes, and backgrounds began hearing about this person of Jesus, how God himself took on humanity 
how he lived an absolutely perfect life, how he died for the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but for all people. And he rose from the dead three days later and is one day coming back. This isn't a bait and switch either. People saw lives transformed by the power of God. They witnessed miracles and they committed their lives to following Jesus. And this great commission still applies to us today. It's what drives us as a church, inviting people to come and meet with Jesus. So how do we do that? As Mel mentioned just a moment ago, over the last year we've put a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of money into creating this worship experience here in the gym, as well as the traditions worship experience in the main auditorium. But now is that next step. How do we invite people to engage? So here's our big, audacious goal. Last year, we had 46 Alpha participants. That's not everybody who was in Alpha. Those are 46 people who would not identify themselves as Christians. 46 people who are seeking. 46 people who want to learn more about who Jesus is and engage with him in a different way. Our big, audacious goal for the next ministry year is 100 we want to more than double that, and sometimes we need to know what it is we're inviting people to. You may have heard that Alpha has great food. We've experienced that. You're probably aware that Alpha has conversations, and we have well-trained leaders. But you've also heard that there's a video, and you might be thinking, well, what are we inviting the, our friends, our family members to? What is that video like? Well, we're going to show you a video this morning. It's not three minutes long. It's 25 minutes long. It's the bulk of our teaching so that you can say to yourself, oh, when I invite somebody to Alpha, this is what they're going to experience. And as you watch this 25-minute video, here's my encouragement to you. Pray and ask God, who can I pray for that I can invite that individual, those groups of friends, in both September and in January? Because we have a big audacious goal. And we have a great big God who can make that happen. Enjoy the video, everyone. Arguably the most famous person in history. Over two billion people claim to follow him. That's one third of the world's population. He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure. Time magazine called him the most influential person who has ever lived. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. 
If you read the Bible, I, I don't think I could believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. For much of my life, I wasn't a Christian. I come from a family of trial lawyers, barristers. My father was a barrister, my mother was a barrister, my sister is a barrister, my son qualified as a barrister, my daughter qualified as a barrister, both my grandfathers on both sides were barristers, my uncle was a barrister. If we'd had a cat, it would definitely have been a barrister. My father was a, a Jew, a secular Jew. He uh, escaped the Holocaust. Many of his family had died in the Holocaust. My mother was not a churchgoer. My father described himself as an agnostic. And I came to the conclusion that I was an atheist as a teenager. And I was quite an argumentative atheist. Not that I was out to convert people to atheism, but if anyone tried to convert me to Christianity, then I had a lot to say on the subject. And I was quite suspicious of Christians. I'd come across one or two of them in my gap year, and they had these smiles, which I found deeply suspicious. And my first year at university, I had a room next to door to my great friend, Nicky Lee, and I warned him against these Christians. I said, don't let them into your room, whatever you do. But it was too late. He'd met some, and one time he and his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Scylla, came back, and they said that they had become Christians. I was horrified. I mean, they were such lovely people. I thought, how can I help them? I, I really didn't know anything about it, so I thought, I better investigate. So I managed to find this old Bible. And that night I started reading it. I started the beginning of the New Testament. I read Matthew's Gospel, Mark, Luke. I got about halfway through John's Gospel, about three in the morning, I fell asleep. The following day I carried on reading. All that day, all the next day, all the day afterwards. I was a student, so I didn't have any work to do. And when I got to the end of the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it's true. You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. Science is obviously very important, but science answers a different set of questions. Science answers the questions, when and how did this world come into being? But it can't answer the question, who and why? Supposing I had a cake here, which I've made, and I give it to a scientist, the scientist will be able to answer the question, how it was made, they may be able to tell you when it was made, but only I can tell you who made it and why I made it. Only the creator of the cake can do that. Only I can tell you I made that cake, and I can tell you why I made that cake. And it's the same with this universe. Only the creator can reveal who made this world and why he made it. And the claim of Christianity is that he has done that. The Creator has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And the evidence is not scientific evidence. That's not the only kind of evidence. But historical evidence. 
when I was a barrister. That's what we relied on. We relied on historical evidence that we presented to a jury. It was things that had happened in the past. They weren't there. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, it's a step of faith based on evidence. And I myself could not be a Christian if I didn't believe that there was evidence. I couldn't just take a blind leap of faith. For me, faith in Jesus is a step of faith based on good historical evidence. Why start with Jesus, you might say? I didn't even believe there was a God. But I came to believe in God through Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus strongly suggests that this world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of, through the lens of, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from within inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short 
chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he? Well, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain. And he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness, and human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job, of being tempted. And he experienced bereavement and suffering and torture and even death. Many today will say, OK, he was a human being, but only a human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. Others would say he was much more than that. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, has said, I don't think you're led off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. He went on to say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? There are two parts to this argument. The first is, what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's the end of the argument. But if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? So, what did Jesus say about himself? first piece of evidence is the fact that his teaching was centered on himself. Most great religious teachers point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus, who personified humility in pointing people to God, pointed to himself. He said, look at me, come to me. We've talked about this search for meaning and purpose, that feeling of like a spiritual hunger that other things don't quite satisfy. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who can satisfy that spiritual hunger. Addiction is a major problem in our society. Jesus said, if the son, in other words, if, if he himself sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then there's all the stuff we carry around, worry, anxiety, guilt, fear. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Forgiveness is right at the heart of Christianity. Jesus went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, if someone sins against you, then you can forgive them, but you can't just walk up to anyone and say your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, the lawyers said, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
but Jesus claimed to be able to do that. In fact, Jesus said that he came to give his life so that people could be forgiven. One of the most direct claims Jesus made is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now making a claim like this was seen by the religious leaders to be blasphemy. It's tantamount to a claim to be God, and it was punishable by death by stoning. People picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think when you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. It is an astonishing claim. And a claim like that needs to be tested. If you think about it, there are only three possibilities. It was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it wasn't true, in which case he was a fraud. Or it was not true, and he simply didn't realize it. He genuinely thought he was the son of God, in which case he was deluded. I think we'd say he was insane. But logically, there's is only one other possibility, and that is, it's true, he was telling the truth. C.S. Lewis, Cambridge professor, best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he put it like this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So was Jesus right in what he said about himself? What evidence is there to support his claims? Well, the first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gather to hear Jesus teach. And on one occasion, on a mountain like this, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been widely acknowledged amongst the greatest teaching of all time. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization. Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then this, totally revolutionary, Love your enemies. In fact, we've advanced in every field of science and technology, yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you might expect God to speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, his character has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine called him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western humanity. He was a person in whom even his enemies could find no fault and whose friends said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them, 
before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Of course, it could be suggested he was a kind of clever con man who set out deliberately to deceive people. He read all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and I'm going to fulfill them all in my life. The difficulty with that theory is that, first of all, the sheer number of them. And then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There were prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. Clever command would be going around and say, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. Then the final piece of evidence, his conquest of death, the physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. You go to a funeral. The coffin is lowered into the ground. It looks absolutely final. And it is. Unless Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to life in which case death has been conquered. But is this just wishful thinking? Person um. to death. That's what I was taught. I'm not, I, I don't know, I can't say yes or no. Yes, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a man of science. I think that's pretty impossible. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> yes, yes I did. I definitely don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. <laughs> no, Jesus did not, did not come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. Well, it could be used as a metaphor, right? Could have been a, a drug trip. Yeah, of course it did. I do believe in that, 100%. Just the relationship that I have with him is proof enough. I'm not sure, I haven't looked that up. Um, I, don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. There are four pieces of evidence for the resurrection. The first is his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained how Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day. People have come up with all kinds of explanations. For example, maybe the authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when people started saying that he'd risen from the dead? Or perhaps the robbers stole the body. But when the disciples heard that Jesus had, had been seen, they ran to the tomb and they found that the tomb was not empty. Inside the tomb were the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. The only valuable thing that a robber might have taken was still there. The grave clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when a butterfly has emerged. And the piece that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and put in a different place. And when they saw that, they believed. The second was his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on more than 11 occasions, on one occasion by a group of around 500 people. People say, well, it could have been a hallucination. Well, hallucination does happen among highly strong, very nervous or highly imaginative people, or people who are sick or are on drugs. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. There were tough fishermen, there were tax collectors, and tax collectors do not hallucinate. The third piece of evidence is the transformation that we see in the disciples. 
Here was a group of people who were disillusioned, despairing that their leader had died. And then suddenly they were transformed. They started saying, we've seen Jesus, he's really alive. And they went around telling everybody. Later on, practically all of them were killed, crucified, tortured, beheaded because of what they believed. And if they were deceiving people, all they had to do was say, no, 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 it's not actually true. But they never said that because they knew it was true. It had totally transformed their lives. And as a result, this extraordinary movement swept around the whole known world. And it's a movement without precedent in the history of humanity. And fourth, it's still happening today. There are now over 2.3 billion Christians around the world of every ethnicity, continent, nationality, economic, social and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. So what are we to make of Jesus? It seems to me clear that Jesus really did claim to be a man whose identity was God. And when we look at the evidence of his teaching, his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, to say he was insane or a fraud seems to me absurd, illogical, actually unbelievable. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. And when I looked at the evidence, when I read the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it is true. I didn't want to become a Christian because I thought if I became a Christian, life would be totally miserable from that moment onward. So I tried to put it off. I thought I'll put off becoming a Christian to my deathbed. And then I realized that would not be intellectually honest. So very reluctantly, I kind of said, okay, Yes. And at that moment, I can still remember that moment so clearly. It dropped from here, from my head, being convinced it was true, to here in my heart, having an experience of a relationship with Jesus. And finding what I guess looking back, unconsciously, I'd been searching for all my life. Something that provided ultimate meaning and purpose to my life. It was the very last place on earth that I expected to find it. But at that moment, I found that what Jesus said was true. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. It really is true that God has revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is hope beyond this life. There is hope for this life. Right now, in this life, in an encounter with Jesus, we find life and life in all its fullness. I love that video. I can watch it any, any day. Love that. I hope that video gave you 
confidence in your own uh, trust in Jesus and that He's worth trusting. I hope it also gave you confidence to say, hey, I could invite somebody to something like that. Um, I, I need your help, though, because... Uh, I need your help because because I I need to, somebody to help me um, keep Ladonna from worrying. My wife. <laughs> if we're going to reach our goal of 100, she needs to increase her alpha team. <laughs> if you'd like to be part of a team and think there might be a role for you on a team like that, would you talk to Ladonna and see if uh, if see if uh, there's a place for you on a team? And uh, the other thing is, uh, in order to get 100, we're, we're going to have to, we, we realize we're going to have to have some different venues for Alpha, not just on a Sunday morning. But if you have a creative idea for, for a place and a, and a way to host Alpha in a different kind of way, talk to either Dave or LaDonna, and they'd love to explore that with you. Some of you might say, well, I, I'm not ready to invite somebody to Alpha, but, you know, in your worship, guys, is a little piece called Summer Fest, Summer something or another. August 4th, we're going to, we usually have a picnic at the end of the ministry year in June, uh, which is often toward the end of June. We're not having a picnic this year at the end of our ministry year. We're having a picnic on August 4th, the last day of our summer day camp. And so it's, it's the end, the Sunday after our summer day camp. And, uh, and it's going to be a sort of a day camp wind up. We're going to invite all the families from day camp there. If you have a neighbor, friend, invite them to church service that day, and we'll have a picnic afterwards. So uh, there's a, a little blip in your bulletin about that. We're going to keep announcing that. So over the next few months, we'll be fleshing a little bit more of this invite challenge uh, and, uh, and giving you some resources to being an inviter, uh, because it's the first step uh, in what Jesus calls the Great Commission, as Mark said, go into your world and help people become followers of Jesus. But what kind of environment is it we want people to experience when we invite them? That's where our second word comes in. Um, can I have the, it's shown on the back screen as well. Our second word is include. Include. You see, there's another central statement of Jesus that we call the great, or that, that's come to be called the great commandment. And Mark's version of it is in chapter 12 where it says, one of the teachers of the law, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said, so of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. There we go. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first in a way that leads you to love your neighbor. Look around you. Love your neighbor. Look around you. Look around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. No command greater, and you can't separate those two, said Jesus. We spend a long, a, a lot of time talking about that statement, and according to Jesus, we need to spend a lifetime working it out. But this morning, I'd like us to see why. Why it is that this statement of Jesus is what is behind the second word in our iCube challenge, include. And just to begin to explore a little bit how we might want to be living it out. 
So why do we use the word include to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, what's, what's the number one feeling of being unloved, of wondering whether we're loved? Isn't it feeling lonely and alone? We've mentioned this several times this last year, but let me remind you, when you look around you in this room, most people you see feel just as lonely and disconnected as you. I've said that a number of times. Every time I've said that, somebody came to me, is that really true? It's true. Rather than blame other people for that or give yourself into a, or into a beating yourself up, let's remember that the reason we all feel that way is because we are part of this group that's called humanity, created as God's image and relationship with God, but due to our own choice, cut off. We walked away. That's our condition. And we will never find completeness, never fully deal with our aloneness until we discover in Jesus the one who restores us into that relationship. But we still tend to look around us and measure our experience of inclusion according to the human experiences we have, by how much we feel we belong. It is a human need. It's widely recognized as a core human need. If you've ever taken any introduction to psychology or, or sociology, you'll recognize that number three on Maslow's hierarchy is belonging. It's why One Child Services Agency in the country of New Zealand has as their dream statement, every child deserves to have someone's eyes light up when they enter the room. Why? Because it makes them feel like they belong. But it's not just children, is it? It's why we have Welcome Home on the homepage of our website. And in order to live that out, we all have to be part of the including team. I, I was a part of a network of pastors of larger churches, not here in Edmonton, although I'm part of one here too. In this particular circle, in one meeting, halfway through the time, the newest member of the group who hadn't really said much to that time except give us his name and where he, what he was doing. As we did the round the circle personal question thing, and I, I even forget what the question was, but he said something like this, I didn't even know why I said yes to coming today. I wasn't really sure it would be valuable, valuable for me, but I already feel it was worth it because some of the struggles you guys have shared are exactly what I've been going through. I've been on the verge of quitting because, listen to this, I thought I was the only one. We all feel it. And in our personal need for belonging, we tend to do one of two things. We act out in appropriate ways, or we pull out and say, there's nothing there for us. Acting out was my thing. When I was, a four, year, when I was four years old, I was the oldest of what became six siblings. Um, and at four years old, my mom came home with number three. And uh, we lived on a country property up the driveway. My dad, with his old 53 Ford pickup, was driving, and mother with her and a baby beside them. No car seats in that time. She was probably holding him. And drove up, and as they drove right towards our house, I stood on the lawn, and I threw a fit. A big one. I still remember it. But I remember more the consequence of throwing a fit. I acted out because I felt I was no longer going to be the most important in the circle. 
I was doing some research on this idea of belonging, and I came across an interesting observation. It says, some people try to prove they belong by excluding others. It reflects the idea that in order for those, in order to have people who do belong, you got to prove there's others who don't belong. That's us, isn't it? We don't even realize we're doing that, but we do, right? We prove we belong by, by ignoring or snubbing somebody, by being extra close to somebody else, maybe even by saying this inside joke that they won't get just to prove they don't belong. We don't even realize that's why we're doing it. So can you see why a key element of loving your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor in this space to begin with, means helping them feel like they belong? It's this whole idea of belonging that was, that, that was what Jesus was trying to help his disciples get in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Here was a man who saw in Jesus somebody who might be able to fill the hole in his soul, but he couldn't get into the circle because he was too short, physically short and morally short. He was a tax collector, which meant he had probably ripped off many of the people in that circle around Jesus. There were all kinds of reasons he couldn't get in, but Jesus stopped his teaching, pushes his, his way outside of that circle of people who are going gaga over him, and he went to Jesus and he said to, or to Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house tonight for dinner, which made the religious people judge him. Zacchaeus recognized his need for who Jesus was, and he gave himself to making things right with people. And Jesus comes out of Zacchaeus' house, and he makes this statement. Get this statement. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, this man, this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He could not have, he could not have made a more, a more statement of belonging and including in the circle than that statement. These people were proud that they were sons of Abraham, and Jesus said this day, this man is in, and you can't say he's not. What I'm calling you to do is act like he is in and including him in. I'm going to die to make this a reality, and don't you dare act like it's not true. Let me wrap this up. Two challenges, really, in this one. Number one. Have you come to the point of allowing Jesus to speak those words to your heart? I died to include you in my circle, the only circle that really counts. Have you heard God's voice to your heart saying, you belong to me? Why are you doing what you do? You don't have to prove yourself. Have you heard that? If you have it today, as we celebrate that a little later, would, would you just in your heart say, yes, I want to I I belong to you and I accept what you've given? But the second challenge for the rest of us who have done that, would you commit yourself to doing something, one little thing, with a different someone every single week you come here and every single week when you leave here, Something which sends to them the message, because I believe Jesus has declared me in his circle. I will do something. I will do something 
to make this person feel like they too are part of the circle, like they belong. Maybe it's simply a word of affirmation to them that you noticed what they did. One little way we can begin to live all of that is every Sunday. Every Sunday when you come in, or every Sunday after the service is over and you go out, look around. See if somebody catches your eye. You know what most of us do when that happens? We're going along, somebody catches our eye, we go like this, <laughs> right? We do it. No, just stop and pause and exercise those mouth muscles, those lip muscles and cheek muscles. Smile. Stick out your hand and say, hi, I I'm not sure we've met. That's all you have to Memorize that line. I'm not sure we've met. You can memorize that. And just see where it goes. Maybe there's a follow-up question after they say who they are. Say, have you been hanging around Ellerslie long? What brought you to Ellerslie? If you're a newcomer here, maybe that's the best way you can start feeling included. And maybe you can invite them to coffee. Maybe you can invite them to, if it's an engineer, say, oh, I know an engineer here. And, and maybe try and connect them. Invite and include. The reasons these two words are central to what's next and what now is because they are the real why behind Project 18. The purpose of Project 18 was to do something to help us create physically an atmosphere, an environment into which we would be confident to invite people to meet Jesus and to create spaces which would help us facilitate a sense of belonging together in Jesus. Invite Include those are the two words we're asking you to make key themes in all of, our, all of your group life together, our together experiences at Ellerslie. And as we do, we believe this will become an environment that you can confidence. You know, this is worth me investing my time, my money, my energy. My giving is not just a duty. I am part of Jesus' team helping people hear in their heart the voice of God saying, welcome home as I help them feel like they're part of my circle. That's all. Can we do those three things together this year? The reason we have to make including each other in our circle a big deal is because God in Jesus has invited us into His circle. And that's why every month we celebrate the ceremony that declares that speaks it into our heart one more time. As we move into this time, listen to how John puts it in his first letter. Look. Take a look again. Look carefully. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, poured out, running over, that we should be called children of God, part of the family, in His inner circle. That is what we are. Number one, give yourself to, to believing that. Open your arms to the arms of Jesus that are open for you. And maybe today some, some of us need to say, okay, Jesus, I'm coming home. If you 
want to say that today. You are invited to come up as we, as we sing the song and, and, and take it and say, thank you, Jesus. If you have done that, we want you to use this time to say, Jesus, I know you have poured out your love into my heart. As we sang earlier, I love that song we sang earlier. There's a fountain filled with blood. Filled with the ultimate life and love of Jesus. That's deep, it's overflowing, it's keeping on flowing. I, I've participated in that and I need to start living it out. Inviting somebody into it, including people into it. That's my job. Would you give yourself to that as we share this time together? Lord, we, uh, we realize we need to be reminded over and over and over again that we are not the center of the world. We're not even the center of our own world. That you have given yourself to be the one who we find life in, who we live life around, whose love fills us, and in doing that empowers us to love with all our hearts like you have loved us. Lord Jesus, as we take this, help us to open our arms and our hearts more fully to your love and to give ourselves to living out that love every day this week. We love you because you really, really have first loved us. All God's people said, amen. So let's stand together and sing. And as we sing, if you, if you want to receive that love, declare you're part of that love, and worship Jesus for that love, you are welcome to come forward, um, receive these elements together, go back to your seat and then sit down and then wait, hold them until we can all share them together. Let's sing.